Welcome once again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm your host Nick Skinner and with me as usual is Tim Cutler, Daniel Beswick once more uh, buried in Women's World Cup work. Hopefully with the tournament getting to the pointy end we'll we'll hear his lovely voice once again. Uh, Tim, how's things over in Vanuatu? Well, uh, I've joined 486 million other people around the world. I've tested COVID positive today. So uh, uh, I think we're just lucky here that it's Omicron and triple vaxxed here. So I've been okay. Unfortunately, poor old Charlotte's been laid out and walk around like a zombie for, uh, I think, almost two days now. So um, we've all been there when we've had a loved one who's in that kind of different state of person it's like uh are they is that the person i'm in love with they seem to have completely changed into some <laughs> kind of like <laughs> but yeah it seems to be spreading like a wildfire here and unfortunately it was just announced we had our first two deaths in the nation two very young two young girls 22 and 5 both had underlying conditions but as did a death that was a couple of weeks ago but that wasn't counted so these ones are so you know, as you had said to me earlier today, with the, the fact it's Omicron, warm weather, small population and sparse, can only hope that things work through quite quickly. But, you know, never good to start. Those numbers had been really encouraging that there'd been low hospitalizations and no one had lost their lives. But that has unfortunately changed. And so for me, that means seven more days locked up. But, you know, that's life. I think uh, I feel okay. I'm, I'm hoping that I've dodged the uh, really bad feelings. I was a little bit woozy a couple of days ago, but um, hopefully I'm okay because there's enough going on. It's uh, going through Port Vila like nothing else, and that includes the VCA team. So of the uh, the five managers, I think uh, three of them have it. So it's, it's a little bit difficult. It's not just a magical world where everybody takes out their laptop and goes and sits in their home office and is able to sort of plug in. It's a little bit different here and just getting everybody to remain active, especially when it comes from a player's point of view is is a, a challenge but uh, good to see the videos go around of people out getting outside and, and exercising and we're also trying to get Patrick Matatava off to Denmark to play for Herning Career Club oh that'll be interesting yeah exactly <laughs> bit of a bit of culture shock for him oh <laughs> uh, he's played in a few places before I think he'll be fine he sort of takes all these things sort of water off a duck's back but um, supposed to fly Friday uh, last week, but that particular repatriation flight that was going to Sydney got cancelled. So we were able to get him on the flight a day later from Auckland. And there was a bit of a mix up with tickets, which meant tickets were only bought the day before, but all sorted. Turned up to the airport you know, at Sparrows before the sun was up and all checked in. Oh, sorry, the flight's not leaving due to a pilot strike. <laughs> so... so so he wasn't able to collect his uh, his onward journey from from Auckland once he got there. So trying to get that all sorted with uh, on hold music and whatnot. Poor Jamal's at home with with COVID, trying to get all these get all this sorted. <laughs> and now he's going to be flying on the fourth on Monday via Sydney again. So uh, yeah. So when people are down ill and everybody doesn't necessarily have great internet connection, it's been uh, been challenging. And also trying to plan ahead, and we're getting some you know some rats some not the uh, the ones with whiskers, but some rapid antigen tests <laughs> from Australia in this container that's coming out with all this other cricket gear. We thought we'll get ahead of this, and you know we'll be able to test before we go touring and whatnot. And thinking, geez, we're clever. And then you know, a big red cross came up. Cannot export these uh, out of Australia because the government's trying to stop price gouging. So I'm not sure how a registered charity in Vanuatu ordering a few boxes of rats will uh, be deemed price gougings. But uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty much been my week you know after all those years of marine insurance with all these dealings with freight forwarders and export notices and whatnot it all came back but 
Yeah, that's pretty much been my week, Nicholas. I think that's that's probably five minutes of everyone's lives that they may want to get back. So <laughs> I probably should have warned them at the start. But beyond that, life is good. Look, I think I look around look around the place and think what everyone's dealing with, kids home, people trying to work from home or not not working at all. You know, there is nothing to complain about from my point of view. How are you, Nicholas? Oh, I'm all right. I've, I've managed to avoid the dreaded Rona still. It's like uh, some kind of obstacle course, I guess, where you, you just feel like it's it's inevitably, it's going to get you eventually, but you, you just keep do- dodging as long as possible and hoping that you, you manage to uh, keep plugging along. Patrick Matautava in Denmark, though, that that's some real emerging cricket areas, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll wish him Heldor Luger and uh, yeah, hopefully he does well domestically over there. Yeah, that was all organised by Jeremy before he went. Mm, the Denmark connection, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully that's the beginning of a of a great relationship. You never know; it can go both ways. Yeah, you know, well, the disadvantage for us is our season runs at the same time, but we start earlier and, and end later. But there's no reason why these sort of relationships can't exist. I think between a lot of the emerging nations, rather than just thinking about getting into the Australias and Englands, etc. But uh, no, I'm really looking forward to hearing how he goes. It's going to be interesting to be playing with and against the guys he's going to be potentially getting on a flight with in July to Canada to play against. But, well, hopefully he'll have a lot of information about, about their side. Well, they'll, they'll just know more about Patrick, who can win a game anyway as much as you want to know about him. So, um, but yeah, no, I'm really excited for him. And uh, it was great of Jeremy to sort that out. And Herning Cricket Club, who basically got him on Jeremy's recommendation. And I guess some clips from the uh, the T10 Blast too. <laughs> well, what's to know about Patrick, really? Smashes it everywhere. That's about the uh, the extent of, of all you need to know. Well, and de- and defends, uh, defends 80 with the ball as well. And, you know, yes, you know, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a hell of a game. Yeah, and his name read out in BBC as well. That was, you know, when he was up there for the uh, the averages for T20s in mm. 2020. But anyway, sorry, I'll let you uh, continue with the podcast. Yes, well, well, we can move to another Pacific, East Asia Pacific nation in PNG who've travelled over to Nepal after the Tri-Series in the UAE. Uh, Nepal's hosting a Tri-Series of their own. They played two ODIs against PNG on the 25th and the 26th of March and then going into a Tri-Series with Malaysia flying over to join them for for T20Is. PNG won 2-0 in the ODI series, which I think was surprising to a lot of people, maybe. Uh, First match, PNG posted 8 for 292, and Nepal got to 8 for 286 in response. Couldn't quite get over the line. It was a very exciting match. Team effort from PNG to to post a a very solid total. Yuravala, Amini, Hakuri, Vanua all chipped in. It makes a big difference. You know, just when a couple of these guys stick around a bit longer instead of just leaving Asad Vala to to do all the work. It's almost like they listened to the podcast last week, wasn't it? (laughs) Well, that's it, you know, just, uh, you know, sort of 20, 30 runs extra once you, once you get in makes a huge difference. Um, second match, Nepal posted 8 for 278 and PNG chased it down in the 49th over with three wickets remaining. I think a couple of talking points. Rohit Padel with a, a great century uh, in the chase in the first match. PNG's sort of teamwork in the bowling, which has always been a strength there. Their bowling and fielding got them home. Norman Vanua backed up from 40-odd off not many deliveries with three wickets. Uh, no Legasiaka in the first match, but in the second uh, in the chase. He, he led the chase from the top of the order with his best score in seven years where he hit 90, uh, which again, you know, we, we've talked about Siaka's struggles over the last little while and you know, the fact that he hasn't scored a ton for so long and, and even that 90 is the best that he's done in seven years is 
kind of depressing for PNG, but hopefully it's uh, a sign of him turning it around. Uh, Dependra Singh Iri with 105 in that second game. Uh, newcomer Dev Kanal. He played his first two ODIs at the age of about 16 or 17. Started slowly um, in that second game again, but looked very good once he got into his rhythm with with the 72. PNG, after Siaka in that second game, got out. Uh, had a bit of a middle-order wobble, but Riley Hakure and, and Chad Soper got them over the line. Chad, once again, his cool head being such an asset for, for that team. You know, looking at the, the two matches... PNG were pretty convincing. Um, you know, they, they still had their, their struggles a bit, but they actually managed to find solutions to, you know, when they did lose a couple of wickets, guys dug in and, and stuck around. And as we've said before, you know, bowling is their strength. A couple more things worth mentioning. Sandeep became the second fastest to 50 ODI wickets in, in men's ODIs uh, in 22 matches, which is... Uh, a very impressive achievement, no matter who you're playing against, uh, which, you know, there's always people trying to denigrate it. But, um, you know, congratulations to Sandeep Lamachano. And I, I guess just looking at the ODIs, the main thing that occurred to me was, you know, where, where's this been for the last three years? And, you know, they've just got off the plane from the UAE where they, they struggled. They did beat the UAE in one game, but, you know, where's this been all this time in the matches where, you know, points are on the line? Well, that's a question, isn't it? It's a, I don't think there's an easy, an easy answer. Um, you could look at it one way. You could say, have we seen PNG turn the corner? And what is, well, there's lots of pleasing elements here, but most pleasing to me is that they won it. One, setting a total and defending it despite an amazing innings. As you said with Port Ells, 126 of 107 rocks. You know, it doesn't matter where you are. That's great. And especially with the, the pressure that Nepal is under with their recent inconsistency. I say recent, you know, their, their consistent inconsistency, but actually coming home and with thousands of people coming out to watch. But then for PNG to chase it down, I know we kind of half-joked last time about, you know, it being UAE's fault for winning the toss and batting first, which was why the fact that PNG got past them. But, you know, to chase down 278 that Nepal got in the, the first innings and that second ODI, I just, I just hope it means that they've turned a corner. And, you know, Asad Vali getting a golden duck mm. in that second match. You know, Legacy Aka, you mentioned him not being in the in the team. I don't know whether, because you know, he, he took a catch as a sub in the first match so i don't think he was he had a niggle or anything so maybe he was he was left out because hiri hiri was opening in, in game one <laughs> and then in true to form for for bng is bat, batting down at number seven in in the second game but i feel like hiri hiri's batted at, at least one to nine you know he's just been everywhere and as you mentioned you know just the consistency like asset valley gets a duck and i think for what, what we call you Bar- barramundi watches you, know, you probably roll your eyes and go well there he goes that but then in, in comes cj 35 Sissy Bao who's been you know a great performer for for such a long time you know he was a leading run scorer back in the World Cricket League Championship for PNG back in 2015 through 2017 so to have that consistency there he got 38 I want to call him Hercule Poirot with uh, Riley Hercule but um, <laughs> Hercule with 48 Hiri Hiri 13 Norman Vanua 11 and Chad Sober 16 off 12 as you mentioned to finish it off you know that's a proper innings and yes you'd like to say well some would have been good if someone up the top got also got a high score to support Legacy Acker. But to see those sort of partnerships, that's what breaks a fielding team. If you take a wicket and then you don't get one for another 10 overs, it can really put a dent in the enthusiasm. I know you're only at the 50 overs and you're international cricketers, but it's just great to see that resolve. It's just too bad that they weren't able to do these in matches that contributed to the points table to get them 
off the bottom and and a bit of momentum going into the latter stages of League Two. But as we've spoken about previously, where they are at the moment on the table, they're all but guaranteed. <laughs> I'm saying that deliberately out loud because the last time I said that that PNG were out of it was was while <laughs> they were they were playing against Oman in Namibia in 2019. So I'm I'm really happy if they come back and win every one of their remaining games and get into the top three. It'd be one of the great the great comebacks <laughs> ever. Like the, that would be a, a confirmed second miracle. And I don't know what well, that would mean. We'd have to give the, the Catholic Church a call. St. Paramundi. Yeah, the St. Paramundis. <laughs> but yeah, and you know what you're saying about Sandeep, amazing numbers. And I don't need to look these things up because you know that Andrew Leonard's going to tweet about it. So um, <laughs> so let me get that up as, uh, as soon as possible. I've, I've seen him trying to work his way into, I know we're going to talk about the, um, the T20Is, but trying to get Karen Casey a, a hat trick, but he took it over two separate games. <laughs> But no, I, I, really reassuring that the talent, the team that we knew that they have, they've showed it and you can never fault the, their attitude. I, I don't think we've ever seen the PNG team walking around with their heads down, even after losing more than a dozen ODIs on the trot. You didn't see them, you know, dragging their heels and that's great to see. So, you know, we're going into the thick of it with this T20 tournament now, which for PNG is probably more important because... They're headed in to the World Cup qualifiers in Zimbabwe in July. So this will probably give Carl Sandry, the coach, a chance to maybe start fine-tuning. And although that's still three months away, four months away, yeah, click your fingers and associate cricket and we'll be there pretty soon. But uh, I guess on the flip side, to us talking about PNG, do we need to talk about Nepal? You know, coming home, playing against a team that had lost 13 ODIs before the last series involved with them and to lose against them twice despite them scoring a century in each of the matches. And I'm sure the stats gurus out there will be able to tell us, probably Bez would know how often teams win games scoring hundreds. So what does that say about Nepal and especially Nepal's attack, despite having the best bowler in associate cricket, the fact that PNG are able to score enough runs in game one and able to chase them down in game two, despite two heroes holding their two different heroes, which, which is great for them as well with Dependra Singh RE and Portel both scoring centuries. The fact it wasn't the same one is great, but what does that say for the attack not being able to take it home? Yeah, I guess that's a it's a question we talked a little bit about last week, and that you know where's the next generation of seam bowling talent coming through? Obviously, Sandeep and, and Co can hold down an end with um, do a lot more than hold down an end on the spin side of things. PNG actually handled Lamachane pretty well in this series. They looked for opportunities to attack when he did bowl the occasional loose delivery, but otherwise they they were pretty happy to sort of play him out for four-ish and over and just uh, target other people, which is, you know, smart cricket when there is one bowler who's a lot better than than the others. Um, you know, just just on those two batters scoring centuries, Iri and Podell, especially for Iri, you know, this is his first score above 50 in 20 or so ODI matches. So hopefully it's a, a turning point for him. And, you know, we've seen him uh, do quite well in, in T20 cricket, but he has struggled a little bit in the longer format. So if he can turn it around, and as we've said before, you know, that, that middle order of so many exciting talents that just haven't quite put it together yet, hopefully they can get a bit more consistent. Dev Canal was, yeah, as I said, another newcomer, 16, 17 years old, looked very good in, in that game uh, where he hit 70-odd. We've seen a number of players sort of burst onto the scene and hit a decent score early on and then fade away. So that's something to watch for Canal. Will will Nepal be able to kind of nurture this talent and, and get the most out of him? Or will there be another one on the kind of rotating pile of uh, kind of fringe players who, who come and go and, and haven't been able to nail down a spot? So, so that's one to watch for the future. Before we 
we move on to the T20s. I, I, I want to be picky here because he's talented and you expect a lot. The Pentress Singh Ari scored 105, but off 140 balls. So that ends up being a strike rate of 75. As great as it is the guy scoring 100, he's almost used up half of the innings mm. to score 100. Now, do you think, despite the other end with Dev, as you said, scoring 72 from 86, so that's just a tick under 84 runs per 100 balls, does that put too much pressure on the... On the other batters, who admittedly have come out and scored quickly with him at the other end, most of them have scored over a runner ball to Santeep down the bottom, scoring 25 off nine and, <laughs> and being not out at the end. I, I just think that at that level, and you're batting 140 balls, you should be able to catch up with the number of balls by the time you're there at the end. So I just just wonder whether you know that you could blame that, because if he gets up to 140, that's 35 runs, and, and they're in the 300s there, and RPNG chasing 300 uh, in Kathmandu so just a little little comment there that I sort of find that Pendra Singh is a, he's a stop or go type batter you know there's the seven boundaries there's still a lot of dot balls in between his big shots and even that only seven boundaries in a in a century under a third of his runs coming in in, in boundaries so yeah I, that's that's a fair point about Irie I think I mean I'm willing to give him a bit more slack just because he has struggled so much in ODI cricket so if, if this can be a sort of a, a way to galvanize him and um, find that form and yeah he was a bit scratched at times but you know the fact he battled through I think uh, showed a good amount of discipline which he has often lacked so yeah time will tell but you know if this is the start rather than you know just a, a flash in the pan then uh, I think I think it'd be all right for Nepal especially since it's a, a bit of a rarity in um, in associate cricket you know a bilateral series that's not actually related to, to anything with points on the line so they can kind of afford to uh, take their time a little bit um, the tri-series also being uh, not an ICC run event, uh, the T20Is, Nepal, funnily enough, their batting looked a lot more dynamic in the T20 format. I, I think a lot of those guys are perhaps better suited to that. The Shake brothers, Padel again, they, they got moving pretty well. Uh, they posted nine for 183 in the first T20I, PNG chasing. Couldn't quite get there, uh, got to 168. Norman Vanua has been having a very good series with the bat, actually. Got, has had a number of um, very aggressive knocks. Um, had a good crack at getting them home, but couldn't quite do it. Um, that just kind of showed maybe maybe PNG running out of steam a little bit, you know. And, and then the, the match against Malaysia was their fourth game in, um, in I think, five days. And that's after a, a tri-series. And I know the UAE, they played eight ODIs in 15 days or something. But, um, you know, flying halfway around the world getting off the plane and, and playing a couple of games straight off the bat. You know, I'm, I'm sure it takes it out of the team, but uh, just to focus on the Malaysia game for a little bit, three for 180 from Malaysia who have not played a, an official international match for, I think, around a year or so. PNG, 172 all out. Couldn't quite get there, but Virendeep Singh, the anchor, 59 not out. We remember last year when uh, Malaysia's last international cricket was in, in that tri-series with Nepal and the Netherlands. Virendeep hit a, a magnificent 87 against the Netherlands to run them pretty close. Uh, Bez's mate, Syed Aziz, thrashed 47 off 26, and the skipper Ahmed Faiz hit 56 to, to get them to a, a very good score. Sharvan Muniandi got the player of the match award. You know, he cleaned up the tail with 4 for 32 off three and a bit overs, but Mohamed Wafiq was the star with the ball uh, with 3 for 14 off four, including uh, Vanua, who was on 45 uh, off 25 to, to kill off any recovery. And um, Tony Ura, who 
you know, we talked about last week as um, you know not quite producing enough. He just looked a lot more fluent in the in the T20 format, perhaps because you know you, you know you have that clarity of for him the role is to just go hard and and not think about it too much. And, and he at 56 to again get PNG pretty close, but uh, a fantastic win for Malaysia. And just you know looking at the context, there's been a bit of talk about it being a huge upset and the the gap in the rankings. And it's certainly an upset, but. The rankings are a bit deceptive and, you know, Malaysia's been on the up and up as much as they can be with a, a limited schedule uh, for a couple of years now. So I think this is just good signs and, and the shows a team uh, coming together and, and maturing with a lot of the talent that they've had. So, yeah, onward and upwards for Malaysia, I think. Yeah, it's been one we've spoken about a lot, you know, ever since we sort of started this podcast about the amazing work that's being done with how much cricket is played there and majority of states of the country, and but they've never really taken that step past the likes of a, a Singapore or, or Hong Kong that you know Hong Kong I think the best you could say is that they've been stagnant for the last two or three years probably should have gone to the World Cup if they'd taken advantage of the position they had against Oman but that would have probably papered over the, the, the fact that they are really still struggling to get the players to come through to replace those that have that have moved on uh, either in age or a little bit older than they were. So this is a big result. I'll, I'll probably save my judgment till we see them play all, all their matches. It's great that they're in, involved in this. And, but uh, yeah, we've sort of said for a while that despite having all that great base work that we haven't seen them put through the performances with the first team, at least the men's team, which is you know in a very competitive sort of Eastern Asia block, if you can call it that, now that they've sort of split that. So yeah, the fact that... Uh, Bez's, would you call Syed Aziz Bez's favourite cricketer? He'd, he'd be up there <laughs> for him to just get 47 off 26 to just close out. You know, almost a perfect innings, you could say, there from probably what they're looking to put together and then to beat PNG. But, geez, I, I don't want to harp on about it, but it's so frustrating from a Vanuatu point of view. The last international cricket that either our men's or women's teams played was a five-match T20I series against Malaysia after the Challenge League league there at the end of 2019, which Vanuatu won 3-2 with Patrick Madhatava, you know, that name again, scoring 150 um, and continue on his form that he showed in the, in the Challenge League. So if you want to talk about rankings, you know, and I know that's a long time ago, you know, that's over two years ago now, but that's only litmus that we can work off, but to show that a team that, you know, we're ranked 49 now, that we're able to beat Malaysia then with a, many of the same players have now beaten PNG, just shows how competitive that World T20I cricket is. And I know we've got a whole series to go, but it's it's really good to see. Yeah, and you know, speaking of Vanuatu, there's a little bit of news coming out from your side of things. A replacement for Jeremy Bray has been found. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Well, yes, I pressed the button on the uh, press release today, so there's definitely news that has <laughs> that that come out. Yes, we went through process there pretty much straight after Jeremy gave us the news that he wouldn't be able to return so great response. I think we had applicants from over a dozen countries, some that you can probably tick off easily, others others not so much. And it was really good to have five really good interview presentations, but even better when you have someone that the entire panel agrees that was head and shoulders ahead, and that was Ben Cameron. Ben, I guess in a previous life, you could say, played uh, first-class cricket for South Australia between 2004-2007, played 19 games over that time, but I think the entire time was hampered by what ended up being diagnosed as really serious arthritis in, in one of his knees and, and also injured one of the other ones, obviously, from uh, favouring that, trying to look after his bad knee, and he basically retired then and there, age 26. And so in 2007, I think at the end end of the year, because that was earlier in the year, he started coaching his premier club in Adelaide and between some some jobs in management and starting his own 
sports agency. Uh, he's been coaching and most recently for the last few years he's been at, at the SACA as a talent and coaching specialist, coaching a second 11, women's teams, etc. and working in that system and just really excited about what he can bring. You know, when you've got one of these roles, when you don't have a director of cricket and a men's head coach and a women's head coach and three assistant coaches and an analyst, you know, you're always potentially compromising when you look oh okay well, he's good at program management oh, she's a great coach but hasn't sort of written pro you know, you got to try and find the best but when you got someone that that really stood out in in, in everything um without putting too much pressure on him no pressure ben we just mm-hmm. uh, need to need to make a world cup in three years time um <laughs> just great and and then it's also the human side to it as well you know how excited ben and lucy as a family with their two young kids max and marley as well wanting to move to vanuatu and for this to be home was a huge plus not that the things like that's a prerequisite especially when coaching in life can be so transient but uh really excited so now it's a small ordeal of getting him here (laughs) (laughs) so it's come back to me in a month's time and we'll see if the flights have opened up again but you know there are things in our control and things that aren't so we'll do with everything we can in our control because you know our next cricket's the middle of july so it'd be nice you know a few months with the squad but uh yeah really really happy you know it's just sound like a coach here saying trust the process but when you have a <laughs> proper process like that and everyone's given their opportunity to present properly and you really get a feel for each of the each of the people and when you've got a, a panel interview panel that's consistent for all, all of the interviews and and everyone agrees it's just good so now we just got to try and find a marketing manager because the one we're about to get uh, has fallen through so that's just another thing to tick off in the, the life in Vanuatu but um, just look outside and see everything going on it sort of feels like mm, it's something we should really be uh, worrying about here but no it's just good to uh, things moving and I know Ben's chomping at the bit so he should start towards the back end of the month finishes with um asaka in just over a week and then it's just a matter of some some handover um get him in contact with jeremy and get him talking about the players and and plans and whatnot and and hopefully by the time he's talking to the squads we're out and training again because at the moment we're still not allowed to train in groups or outside of homes at all and vanuatu national football team was in Qatar at the Oceania qualifier and they had to pull out because the entire team well, almost the entire the entire squad got COVID so yeah not exactly covering the country in glory when no I don't think any other team had the same issue so for us to make sure that we can get that training together soon be really really important but it doesn't help that right next to the VCG is Corman Stadium and that is being used as a community quarantine place so instead of putting people yeah, it's a place that you can elect to go to if you're not able to quarantine otherwise. You're basically like almost like a rescue shelter with all the beds set up in a, a huge auditorium there, the, the um, basketball stadium, etc. So a bit of road to run there for us to get to get back in training and uh, and not have the Red Cross using parts of our field like they were a couple of weeks ago. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when someone drove past and went, ah, it looks like the Red Cross are using part of our field. They didn't ask us, but, um, yeah, we would have said yes, but it would be nice to know if people who are dealing with uh, infected individuals are... Kind of hard to say no to the red cross isn't it so <laughs> well no exactly but you've got to be asked i guess in the first place to say no which we wouldn't have but um 
it just feels like it's a weight off the shoulders. You know, poor old Eddie Mansali kind of handed the hospital pass there. Literally. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> um, and then, by the way, we're all in lockdown and, and trying to get everyone, you know, whose communication skills are low to start with, to get everyone to record themselves doing exercises and then send it to the group and share it, etc. But um, like a lot of things, I think it was the same for a lot of us that have been through the lockdowns already. Getting used to conversing over screen to screen rather than uh, face-to-face is something you've got to get used to. But likewise with this, I think it just took a little bit of time for people to get used to these things. But I think it will be a string of their bow being able to deal with these situations. But uh, like I said before, you know, it's not like lockdown in Sydney or Brisbane talking about real sort of communal living where people are sharing things within the village and, and lots of people living in, in the same place. And just, you know, you can't just open your laptop up and, and start working. And likewise, you can't just start running laps of the yard when that yard is shared by family members and you know, the rest of the village, etc. So tough old slog. But like most things here, people are just getting on with things with a smile on their faces. And you know, I think that's almost one of the hardest challenges is knowing when people need help because people aren't used to asking for help, you know, from a mental health point of view. You know, we're still sort of eons behind, let's say, Australia, you know, that's where you and I are from. And, you know, in terms of mental health and knowing when it's it's okay not to be okay. But, um, you know, we'll get there and we'll start doing the work we can from a cricket point of view. And hopefully that can start impacting communities and families beyond that. But it's definitely very much in front of mind about the mental health of everybody because it's all well and good us joking about how much cricket they haven't played or, you know, trying to train at home. But, um, more importantly, sort of their, their mental health getting through this because inevitably that you've got lots of young kids that are doing very adult things, looking after their their family, whether it was working or farming or having to still go to work when they should be going to school, trying to support families. It definitely brings a new perspective on, on life and what, and what people deal with to support their families and friends here. So this is good news and I know that the team are very happy to see this step forward as well. I think for them as well, it'll give them a bit of a shot in the arm at home, uh, knowing that someone's keen to be coming and someone new and, and, uh, and the fact that we're moving along as well yes some big shoes to fill jeremy bray was a great recruitment uh for for you guys in the high performance role but uh i'm sure ben cameron will do the job uh moving over to women's cricket and the gcc uh, golf cup has concluded over the last week or so uae a thumping victory uh won every game with a net run rate of seven at the end of the uh the tournament which i mean i I don't think i've seen any more convincing victories really (laughs) um uh came second beat everybody else but were pretty comprehensively beaten by the UAE Qatar Kuwait and Bahrain all on two wins each uh, so that's some some nice parity there and Saudi Arabia bringing up the rear did not get a victory and, and were outclassed in, in every game they played but uh, again this is their first tournament and, and I believe that's just the first time they've had a women's team so you know every team starts somewhere um it would be cool if they could get a men's comp running alongside it, not not to take away from the spectacle of, of the women's cricket, um, just in terms of having a, an event uh, that can potentially sell some some TV rights. I think that's something to potentially keep an eye on. But um, as, as we discussed last week, uh, an interesting tournament in that it's run by the GCC, the sort of regional political cooperation body. Uh, one little note to make, Esha Oza, who we, uh, we talked about last week as uh, attending the University of Wollongong, Dubai campus, scored 100. 58 not out against Bahrain for UAE so that's pretty handy for her um and elsewhere in women's cricket Nigeria uh, in a good initiative they've started what they've called the Invitational Women's T20 competition with Gambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Rwanda, Sierra Leone uh, all meeting and it's being hosted in Lagos. Gambia playing their Women's T20 International debut. They've been comprehensively beaten in their first two matches 
as we've said, you know, just the fact that they're playing their first matches, I think that's a lot more important than the results on the field. A uh, bit hard to get a read on the results yet. Uh, there's, there's a lot of stratification in women's African cricket, but Nigeria and Rwanda, based on previous results, are probably the favourites. This is the first edition of this event, um, and it's a good start. You know, without a lot of the ICC regional comps that have been played in the past, um, a, a lot of the regional rivalries need to be fostered by the you know the members themselves, and and you know picking up the slack from from a number of things that have been cancelled. So yeah, uh, very interesting. To to see how they all go in terms of um, where everybody's at in the African region. Um, looking forward, you know, there's a lot of teams around. You know, Mali could be another one to, to invite, even maybe one of the higher-ranked women's sides, like maybe a Uganda or, or a Namibia. But, you know, that's a bit down the line. As it is, I think this is a, a great start, as I said, for, uh, you know, what could be a, a pretty competitive West African region in the coming years with, with a lot of talent being developed. Yeah, similar to the, the Golf Cup, it's just great to see these nations getting together to, to, to put this on. You know, the, the money doesn't come from trees um, to put this on. You know, all those countries that you mentioned, you know, don't have huge big pots of funding to dip into. It's great with Nigeria developing grounds around the country to see them using it. Like you mentioned, it's really hard to get a handle on, on these teams because they just haven't played enough and a lot of new teams, a lot of new players. And, you know, with it being a, a fellow year, shall we say, with no ICC cricket until next year, it's a really good chance to get more of a, an image around African cricket. And if we can get to a stage where we have like an African Cup of Nations or something along those lines of what they have for the football for qualifying for cups and, and get the whole continent interested, you know, that's from a men's point of view. And I know they've tried to do that with an African Cup before, but it looks like the women are doing a better job. So who knows what's coming? You've got Kwabuka to come. And I know that Botswana are also trying to put together an international tournament as well, um, inviting countries of all around the world. So similar to with Kubuka, hopefully welcoming the likes of Thailand and, and others from various other regions too. This is this is really good. You know, we get the African qualifiers next year, um, depending on how they group them, whether they have a lower tier and going to a final or more like a uh, a European setup um, with having three comps going into a final, who knows, but um, all the better for these teams to, to get this match practice. Yeah, and just a, a quick note, the product itself was quite good. I, I tuned into the stream, you know, basic stuff, but it <laughs> cut out less than some matches that have been, uh, you know, on, on ICC.tv. Uh, so, you know, there's that. Uh, had had some commentary. I uh, watched uh, a bit of the Rwanda-Ghana match where uh, Giselle Ishimwe scored some quick runs and Marguerite Vermilia took four for seven. Um, so that was, it was good to watch and uh, it's good that it's there being watched and um, good product and yeah, thumbs up for, for Nigeria in hosting this. Um, moving elsewhere in Africa, uh, down south in Namibia, the Richelieu franchise T20 competition, their premier domestic T20 uh, tournament, has been run once again with BA Blasting winning their third title in a row, this time without Herat Erasmus, so good effort. Uh, they posted 174 uh, in the final, seven wickets down, kept Eminem Science to 135 uh, with Dylan Leicher and Tangini Lungamini doing the damage with the ball. Um, Dylan Leicher actually topped the wicket tally with 16 wickets in five matches, which is a uh, pretty remarkable for especially for a bowler who you know coming through the under 19s program so he might get a bit quicker but he, he looks sort of pretty standard right arm seam to be honest uh, decent areas bit of nibble through the air uh, which which kind of makes the difference you know when people are going hard at you I, I suppose but uh, yeah I, I um, I'm quite interested in how he'll go he, he played uh, one of the Ireland Wolves matches which we'll get to but uh, that's another one of their pace bowling prospects I suppose uh, Zhivago Hunnevald also for, for BA Blasting retired 
year or two ago with injury, made it through the whole comp in one piece. Uh, so that's good. Uh, potentially, um, you know, left arm spin option coming through if he can hold hold the body together and you know see how that goes. Um, Fungai Hlupo, seam bowler, um, was second on the wicket tally with eight wickets at a, a miserly economy rate of 4.5. Got some decent swing, a whippy action. He's apparently Zimbabwean, but he's been in Namibia for a little while Um and uh, I don't know if he's in Namibia's plans in, in terms of eligibility, but um, he, he looks pretty handy. So because he's and he's played in the last couple of Richelieu comps. Um, according to Francois Erasmus, there's a number of Zimbabwean players who, who come over to take coaching work in, in academies in Namibia. So that's uh, that's interesting. Um, JP Kotzer playing for King Price Kings again. He he was hitting them quite well, but you know we we talked a bit about. Um, in the past, his fitness potentially could be a bit better. And especially, you know, for a team that does prioritize fitness, it, it, you know, I don't want to be mean, but, it, you know, it doesn't look like he's been working uh, the, the Tim Cutler method, <laughs> um, let's, shall we say. Um, one one other interesting point I, I thought was uh, was kind of funny, really. Uh, Ruben Trumperman, one player of the series, big left arm fast bowler for Namibia, but he barely bowled and he uh, was actually the highest run scorer with 250. He's hitting 14 sixes. Um, he hit 50-odd in, in that final against Eminem Signs, just smashing across the line and, and down the ground. Mikhail Dupriere, another uh, pretty consistent performer. Milan Kruger, both of those guys, I think, have, have sort of popped up in the in the Wolves squad as well. Yeah, so, yeah, good good tournament overall. Um, I think, just for me, I think it would be nice if the comp could run a bit longer because basically every team played each other once and then there was a couple of... Um, eliminator semi-final things um, and, and the finals, which, you know, it, it, it is tricky because the players who don't have central contracts obviously mostly are available on weekends, you know, trying to fit it around work. But um, at the same time, it's a, it's a pretty decent standard with, with a number of, you know, national team players sort of sprinkled throughout the squads. And uh, one thing I liked as well was that each squad had to select a couple of the under-19s players. And that's how Dylan Leicher had a go and, um, you know, took 16 wickets. So, uh, you know, you, you never know where the next bit of talent's coming from. Yeah, you used to say that about the format. You know, there's a strong link with the Titans in South Africa. You just wonder whether there's opportunity of growing this into something larger that means they can pay the players or pay the players more, which means that they can have them available for longer. And, you know, I don't think that everything needs to be done like the Hong Kong T20 Blitz, but something similar where you're only looking at one or two extra days, which means you can actually get more players because players can take annual leave, etc. Now, it's interesting, Trumpleman getting player of the series with the bat you know we've lamented zane green's performances after seeing him come onto the scene with a real bang in, in 2019 and sort of perhaps be left out you know you just wonder if trumpleman could be I, i'm sorry but a potential trump card <laughs> up the top there of the order wh- whether that means they could really look at, at playing a proper keeper um you know like zane who's probably you'd say a, a keeper first who knows they might have discovered something there that they can take forward because you know having that bowler who can bat up the top you know what that does for the rest of the team when you've got that extra spot down low for either a bowler or an extra batter especially in t20 cricket can be really important yeah i mean a bit of an embarrassment of riches with um bowlers who can uh who can hit or maybe batters who can bowl for namibia you know just with so, so many all-rounders coming through yeah I, I think yeah as you said it would be good um if they can find some way to to try and just stretch out the tournament a little bit longer uh it, it's just it's good to have a bridge between the the national team and, and the club tournaments in namibia which are, are of a decent standard but it's definitely not the same as as um you know international cricket and having this kind of halfway house can only help 
these players develop and, and um, you know, to improve the overall quality. In terms of development as well, uh, we've also seen Namibia hosting the Ireland Wolves or, or Namibia A uh, playing against them. The, we talked a little bit about the T20 series. It was one all uh, when we recorded last week. Uh, um, the Wolves got pretty comprehensively beaten in the third T20, posted 565, but uh, a brilliant chase from Jan Nicole Lofteaton and JJ Smith got the Namibia A side home in, I think, about 17 overs, which uh, was, was pretty impressive. The, the the best part of that chase really was the fact that they, they I mean, we'll, we'll get to Hume's last over in a sec, but um, they, they rotated the strike pretty well and, and they did smash the bad deliveries, but it was mostly just cool heads and, and keeping calm. And yeah, got to the uh, Hume's, Hume's last over uh, who bowled just some, yeah, it went for 32 with four sixes. Uh, the match finished with five wides. Oh dear. Uh, JJ Smith kind of looked sorry for him, I think, as as he was just smashing it. You know, again, we talked last week about the um, the eligibility and a number of these guys. You know, the Irish side kind of waiting out for for these players to become available. But yeah, I don't know if it was one bad day, but Hume really looked ordinary in in that T20 game. In the first of the list A matches, which which has been played, Namibia. Uh, got off to a good start. They beat the Wolves again, so you could say the Wolves are in the doghouse at the moment. <laughs> um, Namibia posted 9 for 253 off their 50 and restricted the Wolves to 8 for 246. I think Namibia probably in that list A game would be a little bit disappointed not to have got to 300. You know, they were none for 100 after 17 overs, which is, you know, the kind of position where you, you probably should be looking at 300 as a minimum. Devan Lecoq, Came into the side, uh, opening the batting with Stephen Bard. He looked really classy, and he's he's another of those uh, under-19s graduates from a couple of years ago. Uh, he's been in and around some of the the Richelieu games, and yeah, he he just he's got the shots, he's got the time on the ball, he's got the technique. I think you know he's he's another option at the top of the order where you know Namibia have been kind of uh, tinkering a lot with who to partner with Bard. So. Yeah, Lecoq's another one of those options. And, you know, Bart himself has been in, in a bit of a form slump, both in T20 and 50 over cricket. So, you know, he only got 40 or so, but he um, he struggled a bit early and then kind of um, found a bit of fluency and caught up. So it was almost at a run a ball after being, I think it was on three off about 17 deliveries. So he, he kind of found that gear and clicked in. So if he can find a bit more consistency, I think that'll set Namibia at ease as well, you know, having that, that um, bit more solidity at the top of the order. Um, the fact that they only got to 253 it's kind of a recurring problem for Namibian squads, whether it's uh, the the full national side or a, a development team. They they just kind of they lose wickets in the middle order. It looks like you know there's so many guys that can hit it that they kind of they're a bit careless with their wickets and they just lose it a bit quickly and then suddenly they they're relying on JJ Smith to bail them out down the order and um you know he usually delivers but um you know you, you can't always rely on that um so yeah the Wolves. Yeah, I don't know. They started, they was very slow. They were 112, one wicket down, but that was after 29 overs. So, yeah, tidy spells from uh, Ben Shikongo and Mauritius and Gapita and, and uh, Bernard Scholtz kept the pressure up. Neil Rock hit 47 off of about 30-odd, but, uh, you know, he was the last man out in the last over, so he couldn't quite get them home. So, yeah, I don't know, kind of mixed results for the Wolves. Namibia would be pretty happy with the way things have gone. I, I don't know how much, you know... What is what is Ireland going to think? You know, looking at this, the fact that they're 
pretty strong development side can't get over Namibia A. Um, yes, they're away from home, but yeah, that's not shouldn't really be an excuse. Yeah, I think we talked about it last week, and then we sort of debated the merits of them waiting for qualifiers to to do the time to be eligible versus them growing themselves. But yeah, but it's a tough old tour. And on paper, you know, this is the the A team of a of a test nation. So the fact that they're down there and, and being pretty soundly beaten by I don't know what would you call it a kind of a seventy percent Namibia team, maybe maybe fifty percent. Yeah, about that. Yeah, almost Namibia team. So we shouldn't sort of talk down the wolves and I love your doghouse joke. <laughs> Look, I feel like if you're finally joining us with the dad jokes, um, and interesting as well for for JJ Smith to get this much experience skippering. You know, I guess you ask the question if um, Erasmus keeps injuring himself and he's not there. You know, who who steps in? You know, does a visa come in or despite he's been uh, last man in would he take the armband because of his experience um, and I, I think that might be the way that you lean with his his experience and performance but uh, it's just, just interesting to see a new captain of the men's team there sort of a, more or less the men's team so no good to see some performances but yes he's saying about the Hume it was like he was bowling on the Hume highway um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry everyone that's a that's a Sydney reference um, yeah 32 I can't What's the most you've ever gone for an over, Nick? Oh, jeez, not thirty-two. I would, yeah. I would, I would remember thirty-two. Yeah, that's yeah, same. I, and you've almost got to try, don't you? And finally, this week in a, a busy week in emerging cricket, the Netherlands tour of New Zealand finally got underway. They were supposed to start with a T20, which was completely washed out due to the the New Zealand rain, and they played the first ODI at Mount Manganui where the Netherlands posted 202 with New Zealand chasing it in the 39th over, three wickets down. Look, some pretty brain-dead batting from the Netherlands, if we're being honest. The pitch, you know, was was pretty batting-friendly, but uh, just some really soft dismissals. You know, Vikram Singh especially played really well, and then catching practice to, you know, sort of that third-man gully region, absolute gift of a wicket. And, you know, Max O'Dowd just kind of swinging across the line. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. The, the whole top order, really, I think Zayla probably would be pretty disappointed with his <laughs> with his colleagues. Uh, Ripon, Michael Ripon coming into the team, hit a 50, uh, and Zayla uh, hit, I think, 40-odd. And they pulled things back to, as I said, to 202, which, you know, if they bowled well early, could have been maybe defendable, but yeah, a ton for Young for New Zealand made it pretty one-way traffic in the chase. Yeah, they didn't really utilize the swing very effectively, and and if you don't take early wickets, there there isn't a whole lot for the bowlers. Um, yeah, not not a whole lot to say. New, Ze- New Zealand just comprehensively outplayed the Netherlands. Uh, what do you make of Brandon Glover? Because he's ostensibly the leader of the attack, you know, in, in that he's that fast spearhead, but he, he really hasn't looked great in, in his last little stint in the side. And uh, his, his lines have been off and, you know, fast is good, but at the same time, you got to have something a bit more. I took the words right out of my mouth. And look, if it was just this series, he was getting pongoed a bit. You'd say, you know, you're playing against some players that are used to playing against that pace more often. But it's not been that. It's been the last few matches and few series have been part of it. So not sure what that, what that means, whether he's carrying a niggle or he's tried to change something. I'd, I'm no fast bowling doyen, so I can't offer much there. But I'm definitely there on the lines. And if you're good Got a guy or girl who just can't get their lines right and is bowling down the leg side too often. You know, it tells you there's something there's something wrong with the action or just something wrong in general. That it's a head run up, whatever. But um, you know, this event you know should really be the sort of the crowning glory that they've built to, and you've got all your players at their best. 
their the best clip, but you know we don't have all of their best players. I know we've talked about this in the past, and and we don't have their their best fast bowler really at top condition. So I I, I don't know, and especially in a sort of a short shortish series like this. But geez, it was lucky. I oh, know lucky is the wrong word because it was skill that got him out there. But for for Sailor and Ripon, um, it was interesting watching it with the Kiwi commentary as well that. They knew, knew Rippon well. It was almost like they were commentating about a mate and Van Beek as well, talking about all the players in the, in the same team that had played in under-19s, etc. But I don't know. We Well, you jokingly predicted the uh, the Paul Rifle, Mark Taylor, potential of Rippon being picked for New Zealand mid-series. And with these being bilaterals, you know, it's not an ICC series where you've had to submit a, a squad that you stick to. So it was quite funny seeing Bertus de Jong's piece for Crick Buzz with the interview with Rippon saying, well, you know, he hasn't played well enough to be in consideration for New Zealand and then it's just a little postscript until today you know who better to perform against actually the teams you can't get into so who knows what the future holds so it might be great for in general for a performance of a Dutch player but maybe not so great in the long term if he suddenly gets picked for New Zealand but we've heard pressure from other full member nations we won't name any names but um, it's relevant to the conversation about players making themselves available for the Netherlands despite being eligible I don't get the feeling that New Zealand are going to be public enemy number ones here and pick Ripon for only one game and then and then never pick him again. But I'm a little bit disappointed not to see Mark Chapman out there playing against his pre-associate buddies. But um, yeah, uh, but I guess back to Glover. I guess we'll see in the second game. Um, but you know, Cambo must just be uh, wringing his hands at the plays that he that he wishes he had um, with him in New Zealand. Yeah, that's the other point. Is that I mean. Not to harp on it too much, but the the Super League is supposed to be, as as you said, the you know a showcase for the associate game and and you know, having all these matches against full members. And if you can't get your best team on the park, you know it it really it undermines the integrity of the competition. But then again, you know the, the fact that the competition is being cancelled um, at the end of this edition anyway, kind of yeah, you sort of feel you know why why would you necessarily bother turning out if you're not even going to be. Um, you know, if there's not really any consequences attached to it or, or any... I mean, I guess theoretically they could qualify directly for the World Cup, but in terms of promotion and relegation, that's already been decided. So, yeah. Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? You talk about the integrity of the competition after it's basically lost it because of the promotion and relegation and the fact we finally had a meritocratic structure that fed into the, the World Cup. But anyway, we've been there before. It's sort of shades of Namibia to uh, under-19 World Cups ago when it when they finished so high up the table, beating full member after full member. But uh, the rules were changed, meaning that they had to go back to qualifications for the, for the next year. It'd be funny if the Netherlands did the same thing and get a few, few wins going their way for the rest of the Super League, qualify for the World Cup automatically <laughs> and then and then be uh, been back to a, a, a second-tier competition, whatever it looks like, after 2020. 23. Yeah, disappointing, uh, but uh, yeah, not, I'm sure not the uh, the last time we'll come back to this topic. Uh, yeah, rest of the series, New Zealand playing against the Netherlands uh, in Hamilton on the 2nd and 4th of April. Hopefully the Dutch managed to put together a, a better performance in, in those two games. Um, I think that's about all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in once again uh, to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. We really appreciate your time and um, we wish you... All the best wherever you are in the cricketing world. Yeah.